Guardians. Captain Richard Ruff. Is correct. Please. Do your plug now. Yeah, That's we, it. Yeah. We, we would <laughs> we really, like, we would really like to hear. Um, so, do you think that one way or another, you most likely watch television, whether from time to time or oftentimes? Sure, it's highly unlikely that. When you do, you're greeted with sounds even remotely like the ones you've just heard. But still, it could be that you're actually using a device explicitly called a television, sighted in a room in which televisions tend to be, such as a lounge or a family room. Or perhaps you are using a remediated version of television. Television via a device such as a smartphone, a tablet, or a laptop. Maybe you are even one of those people who use a digital projector. Either way, the content you are watching may itself be only loosely television. Perhaps it is live content such as news, a sports match, or some kind of live-to-air cooking competition, or maybe you're watching a program or just clips through an on-demand streaming platform. Regardless of all these variations and contingencies, the mediated practice in which you are engaged is, according to some scholars, inherently of the suburb. You may not be in a suburban home, but the mediated situation in which you are partaking has important technological and cultural connections with the suburb as an historical form of urban development, as an archetype for living, and above all, as an emergent configuration of mediation in a modern urbanizing world. Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city and the city through media. We will approach the media urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll be avoiding these kinds of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students in my module, Media, Digitalization, and the City, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. In this episode, the third in our series, we explore the relations of television and the city. The key idea I want to get across is this. Television in suburbs are today diverse phenomena. Yet looking at their shared emergence raises key questions about the codependencies of media forms, specific spatial arrangements, lofty ideals, and long-term cultural transformations. Television and Everyday Life is one of the most highly cited books of the late Roger Silverstone, a well-regarded scholar who founded the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. A media studies book from 1994, it's neither quite old enough to read at a distance, as a historical text, nor recent enough to escape the occasional feeling that some of its details and positions are dated. But if we put those concerns aside, Silverstone's argument in this book around the relationships of television and suburbanization remain an apt way to think through some of the evolving relationships of media and cities in the 20th century. Silverstone has two starting points for his argument, the first of which is Raymond Williams' renowned 1974 book, Television, Technology, and Cultural Form. 
In this book, Williams identifies the apparent codependencies between the history of broadcasting, initially radio in particular, and related consumer technologies, such as the motor car and domestic electrical appliances. These technologies were codependent in how they allowed for a new way of living at the juncture of two tendencies, which on surface might appear to be contradictory. On the one hand, mobility, and on the other, a private, home-centered way of living. Williams called this process mobile privatization. Although Williams does not speak about suburbanization per se, his analysis points to a set of related processes through which it becomes possible to live geographically distant from the traditional city center, yet be connected through transport and communications technologies. The upshot is the home emerging as one of the preeminent sites of urban media, a place of and for communication, to which Silverstone argues television was air. Silverstone's second starting point is a 1993 essay by anthropologist Marilyn Strathern, which seeks to work through the relationships between modern life, technology, and cultural understanding. Strathern argues that modernity is best defined as a process of hybridization or creolization, a process of constant mixing and interweaving. Suburbanization, as an emergent cultural phenomena, rather than a type of urban development, is, for Strathern, a paradigmatic example of such processes of intermixing and interweaving. The suburb embodies an example of the more general breakdown between once primary distinctions, such as nature-culture, bodies-machine, or rural-urban. While these terms have tended to be defined in relation to one another, there are also instances in which modernity produces new notions which conflate or elide such distinctions and produce new cultural phenomena. Suburbs are for Strathern an example of this. As she says, quote, Suburbia is neither urban nor rural. It may represent both, but when it is reproduced as suburbia, comes to represent neither, end quote. Suburbs offer a way of life away from certain elements of the city, yet also borrowing many of its infrastructures and resources, both material and cultural. They are not principally orientated to nature or culture, but rather endeavor to create and cultivate a kind of artificially managed nature. Inspired equally by Williams and Strathern, Silverstone wants to argue that television is a definitively suburban medium, quote, both historically and sociologically, literally of and for the suburb, end quote. This notion of television as a suburban medium depends on a broad definition of suburbs, or suburbanization, along three planes. First, Silverstone understands suburbs as a historically contingent built environment aimed at providing a new way of life that is neither rural nor urban and which supports quite concrete and novel political, economic, and social relationships. Second, he understands suburbs as an idea and ideal, one which for some is a dream, an assertion of autonomy and an escape from the complexity, discomfort, and strangeness of the city, but for others is a nightmare, a sterile, lifeless, and uncultured pseudo-urban landscape. Third, and this is important if we want to see the suburban more broadly than it's conventionally understood, Silverstone sees the suburb as a symptom of broader processes of hybridization and its ambiguities. Between, for example, public and private, mobility and stasis, collectivity and individuality. So television is not only definitively suburban as the central media technology of the suburban home, one that recursively communicates suburban ideas and ideals. At its core, 
it embodies many of the more general ambiguities of modernity, in which suburbia is but a symptom. Today, March of Time is in Levittown, Pennsylvania, where a city is being born. The prospective homeowners come from various sections of the United States. Each will be a part of a unique community being built today on what were spinach fields just a few weeks ago. When Levittown is completed as planned, it will be a city of 60,000 people. Despite figuring television within a broad definition of the suburban, in some ways, Silverstone understands television's place a little more narrowly. While, as I will mention later, he is keen to acknowledge that suburbs have been and continue to be extremely varied and diverse, for example, not always middle class, for Silverstone, the commonality of all of these different forms of suburbia is the relationship between television, house, and home. Television in Everyday Life's third chapter, which is our main point of reference here, begins, for instance, with a quote from Dolores Hayden, describing how early suburban homes built by William J. Levitt in New York and Pennsylvania not only included televisions, but built them directly into the wall of the living room so that they could be included within the mortgage financing. This starting point makes sense when we remember that Roger Silverstone is perhaps best known for his work on media domestication. Emerging out of late 1980s audience ethnographies, domestication refers to how media technologies, including television, may initially exist as novel instruments or gadgets in the home, but are eventually adapted by users into their routines and environments. This process of adaptation renders media into appliances, which largely disappear from daily consciousness. In the home, one tends to simply watch television programs, rather than worry about the set itself. We're drawing this lineage back to Silverstone's work on media domestication, not to suggest he sees television as somehow connected umbilically to suburban homes. Silverstone is well aware that television is watched in a wide variety of places, and his argument is more accurately that television is itself a suburbanizing technology, not that we should think about television as the media form we find in suburbs. And yet, it's at least worth affirming that some of the ways the connection of television and home are described, for instance Silverstone's discussion of soap operas, which I won't be detailing here, are rather more rooted in the early 1990s, the time of writing, than others. Probably the most important historical development to underscore here is the role of television, alongside other technologies, in making possible the geographically dispersed and more private forms of urban living embodied by suburbs. Here we should stress the interlinking and codependency of communication and transportation technologies, and perhaps even question our tendency to make a distinction of communication and transportation. Here we can return again to James Carey, who famously argued in 1989 that one historically significant feature of the telegraph is that it severed, for the first time, the notion of communication from transportation. The former became associated with symbolic information, and the latter with physical movement. More recently, however, Carey's essay has been reinterpreted as making an argument about the intimate interlinking of transportation and communication, as a reminder that both symbolic communication and physical transportation depend on and produce material geographies. Silverstone argues that suburbanization is an urban form made possible by both technologies we conventionally associate with physical transportation, such as railways, trams, and of course, the private automobile, and technologies we conventionally associate with symbolic communication, such as the telephone, phonograph, radio, and of course, television. Also important were other household appliances, 
notably refrigerators, which made it possible to store large volumes of food at home. They made it possible for a weekly visit to the supermarket to replace the daily one to the local shop. Suburbanization arises, in other words, through a constellation of transportation, communication, and other consumable technologies. Technologies which, together, made it possible to commute to city centers from the private home, but also be persistently and meaningfully connected to a broader public world. As part of his discussion, Silverstone interrogates the strengths and weaknesses of Jürgen Habermas's notion of the public sphere, the detail of which we won't rehearse here. The main point Silverstone makes, however, is that we will not get very far in grasping the significance of television as a suburbanization of the public sphere if we see it, as Habermas might, as a consumerist configuration of publicness, juxtaposed against one that is more rational or more reason-based. Instead, television and its nexus with the suburban represents for Silverstone a particular reconfiguration of publicness. It's one that Silverstone critiques, because he sees it as emphasizing a politics of self-interest, conformity, and exclusion. But it is also one which Silverstone seems to acknowledge has enabled more national and even global forms of connection, not to mention emotional as well as rational political sensibilities. In between the lines, Silverstone seems to be acknowledging the sheer ordinariness of television, and even a broadly suburban mentality today. So perhaps the real question becomes, how might we develop forms of public interaction and dialogue given this still-evolving historical situation? What is that, Monra? It's a television. In a pub? Yeah, ask the boy one day. It's nothing to do with me. Oi, tell him what you told me. Well, I could make some brackets, we could put it on the wall, and watch the sport. In a pub? One way we might stress test the notion of television as a definitively suburban medium is by taking it out of the confines of the suburban home. As Anna McCarthy notes in her 2001 book, Ambient Television, while there has been a tendency to think of television as belonging to the domestic household, the medium is in fact scattered across a very wide range of mundane places. For example, in pubs, cafes, airport gates, doctor's waiting areas, and many other places. McCarthy argues that what is distinct about television in such public spaces is its ambience. It is present, but our attention is organized in ways different than the home. We should think of the home as just one, one crucial site of television viewing. But, quote, the quotidian geography of TV in public is composed of sites where commerce and bureaucracy, purpose and drift, routine and event interweave, end quote. For McCarthy, This means we need to understand the material and practical specificities partly produced via the inclusion of television in various locales, which she explores both conceptually and with reference to some evocative examples. One is the introduction of TVs into male-dominated taverns and pubs, a moment which you just heard humorously reimagined in the BBC drama Life on Mars. She also discusses brief experiments by department stores which place TVs at the point of purchase primarily to address female shoppers, and the emergence of place-based media corporations such as Turner Airport Network or Transit TV, which imagine their audience based on their unique viewing situations. Though these examples are historically and geographically specific, they anticipate many of the things we're going to discuss later in the series, for example, around the proliferation of public screens and the rise of location-based mobile technologies. It might be tempting to regard television in public spaces as a means through which places become more generic. After all, 
Television so often seems central to those sites, supermarkets, airports, hotels, and so on, which French anthropologist Marc Auger labeled non-places. McCarthy argues, however, that, quote, genericness does not necessarily entail emptiness. Indeed, attempts to characterize a place as generic say much more about the speaker than about the place itself, end quote. McCarthy is thoroughly interested in the banal. Her concern is less with more well-known forms of television spectatorship in public, even those screens in pubs used for watching sports, which are so often captured by television news to underscore the publicness of major sporting events. One cross-cutting concept McCarthy does use to study ordinary forms of television in public space is that of scale. She is interested in the discrepancy and divergence that television introduces into public spaces between the general and the specific. To do this, McCarthy draws on the distinction Michel de Certeau makes between strategies and tactics in his 1984 book, The Practice of Everyday Life. For de Certeau, strategies are the overarching frameworks and objectives of dominant institutions, whereas tactics are the everyday activities of ordinary people using and sometimes appropriating the products of those dominant institutions. In particular public spaces, Television both introduces a standardized and institutionalized media form and its related content, yet also is a way for individuals to tactically carve out forms of getting on in their everyday life. We might say getting on in their urban life in particular, even though that's not the lens that McCarthy stresses. Thinking about ambient forms of television reminds us of the broader meaning we should ascribe to the domestication of media. As Helval and Sletmas argue in a 2008 article in New Media and Society, well, domestication has strong connotations with the home, the family, domesticity, and the private sphere, the etymology of the term is more closely linked with the domestication of animals. In other words, we should think about domestication as referring to taming the wild in technologies. The concept has more general application, and we can use it to think about the various ways that media are used built into and forgotten throughout urban environments. Let's focus in on just one strand of McCarthy's analysis of ambient television, the way in which television produces various kinds of spatial demarcation in urban spaces. As Lynn Spiegel argues in her 2001 book, Welcome to the Dreamhouse, the physical situation of televisions in the domestic household often work to segregate the housewife from the rest of the family, or otherwise, it integrated her into the communal space, but as an accommodating servant. The broader lesson here for McCarthy is that the ways that media technologies are designed, placed, and used in both domestic and non-domestic settings matters. As she says, quote, the position of the TV set, in short, helps to position people, end quote. Perhaps the most utterly ordinary way in which television appears in public spaces is mounted above, near to the ceiling of a room, out of reach, but highly visible. McCarthy observes that when television is placed this way, it arguably acquires even more institutional status than in the home, or at least different status. Unlike in domestic spaces, viewers are unable to control what is being shown, allowing the technology to become a means of institutional speech. The placement of televisions, elevated or not, can operate as a kind of semiotic magnet. It is frequently the case that around a television in public will be other objects or ephemera associated with that place. Stickers on the set, posters, photos, plants, whether real or plastic, 
In hospital waiting areas or doctor's offices, McCarthy notes how television sets are often a locale for the placement of published material and information. Throughout the book, McCarthy employs her own hand-drawn sketches of various settings of television in public. One shows a shopping mall food court in Bethesda, Maryland, with multiple overhead screens dividing the spaces into individualized viewing areas. For McCarthy, this creates an interesting dynamic based on a situation where two people are sat at a table facing each other and with screens behind each person's head. Such an arrangement affords an opportunity for easy switching between two roles, conversationalist and spectator, a process often requiring little more than a subtle redirection of gauge, not even a repositioning of the body. It would be too simple a reduction, McCarthy argues, to see this as a straightforward collapse of the Habermasian idea of the public sphere. It is best seen as a fragmented form of public address, or attention, in which a conversing viewer is shifting or even hesitating between two forms of space, one that is distant and one that is proximate. And while television brings a more distant spatiality to such a milieu, it may be that images on the screen could momentarily seem more live than the person with whom one is conversing across the table. An interesting consequence of this analysis, McCarthy notes, is that it shows how non-domestic television may oftentimes be rather less forgotten in the ways television in the domestic home is. Or perhaps we should say, public television is domesticated differently. Thinking about the example we just discussed, between the modes of conversant and spectator, we see a situation more likely to invite reflection on the medium itself. McCarthy argues that the television in public more readily alerts us to notice and perhaps even reflect on the pervasiveness of television and even media in general. When we become distracted or notice television competing with other activities, we pause to register the saturation of our everyday life with media. And yet, an equally important theme for McCarthy is how television can become a way for users to establish a more personal space in public. In one of my local shops in East London where I go to pick up some loose ends, milk or eggs or snacks or whatever, I have over time become more and more aware of something. When I arrive at the counter to make my purchase, high up on top of a refrigerator behind me is a medium-sized flat-screen television. I realized it was there because I noticed how the person at the cast machine would suddenly shift their eyes from the screen to me and then tally up what I was buying. When I discreetly swiveled my head to take a look, I was rather enchantedly transported to a reporter speaking from, I think, Istanbul, since the shopkeepers were watching satellite television broadcast from Turkey. Aside from an interesting, if fleeting juxtaposition for me between London and Istanbul, McCarthy would suggest that what is going on here is in some marked contrast with the overhead institutionalizing television in public we have just been discussing. As she says, quote, instead of public access, these private arrangements are a far more tightly directed, architectonic opportunity for an immersive relationship to the screen, accommodating one person at a time. Such positionings are explicit to their invitation to use spectatorship to construct a zone of privacy in public, often referencing domestic space and domestic conventions of screen placement in the process. End quote. Such apparent zones of privacy via screen viewing doesn't only, of course, happen in situations of work. 
McCarthy discusses the coin-operated televisions, once visible in many airports, in which travelers could not only pay to watch television, but in so doing distinguish themselves from others in the airport space by engaging in spectatorship. This, of course, is an act that is highly pervasive today, via our use of smartphones, tablets, and laptops. The difference, of course, is that, in each of those cases, we can shift from watching something recognizably televisual, such as streaming television news or watching a Netflix program or even a YouTube video, to doing something else, such as scrolling through social media, typing messages, or taking a selfie. Let's come back to the relationship we have posed of the suburban and screens. It's worth underscoring the extent to which Silverstone, our main point of reference on this relationship, understands the risks of describing television as suburban. First of all, it may appear to make the historically inaccurate suggestion that suburbs are primarily a post-war phenomena. But this is just not the case. As Silverstone acknowledges, the suburb stretches back to at least the late 18th century to the bungalows that the East India Company built for its employees in Calcutta. It also risks being rather reductive. Even though Silverstone does insist television is a definitively suburban medium, he also makes clear that there are many other ways in which we can understand television. A final risk is one of universalism, where television is overemphasized as a deep structural cause of the postmodern condition Silverstone is addressing at the time he was writing. It is also arguably important to think about what suburbs we are talking about. While Silverstone is careful not to simply fall back on the quintessential image of American suburbia, with middle-class homes full of white goods, shopping malls full of cars, and a functional separation between different uses— As Roger Kyle makes clear in the 2013 book, Suburban Constellations, the global suburban landscape today is kaleidoscopic. It is incredibly varied. In many contexts, the suburbs or urban periphery is not an area of privilege or privacy necessarily, but of relative marginality. In other contexts, where suburbs may still be relatively prosperous, they are not necessarily as homogenous or exclusive as they once were particularly in cities that have experienced long-term processes of gentrification, suburbs are increasingly ordinary and often ethnically and socially diverse places. We can ask similar questions about television. Just how coherent is television as a medium today? In a 2011 essay in the journal Screening the Past, Francesco Cassetti makes a similar point in relation to cinema, which of course has its own substantial urban screen histories. As Cassetti argues, Cinema reached a certain apogee as a cultural form when it achieved a unity between, on the one hand, film as an art object, and on the other hand, cinema as an environment for experiencing that object. This is a unity that has now been split, says Cassetti, with cinema moving along two primary paths of relocation. The first path is that the film object can be accessed in a whole series of sites beyond the cinema— processes which have implicated television in broadly similar, if also distinct, ways. The second path is that cinema-like environments have been replicated far beyond the theatre. And this process has affected television in myriad ways also. The viewing experience and televisual genres stemming from high-definition televisions are less and less akin to the low-resolution medium television was in the past. 
and yet maybe we are troubling a little too much about all of these details related to the suburb and the screen. The point of raising the interconnection of the suburb and the screen has not been to enduringly associate television with a particular mode or phase of urban development. Rather, the point has been to use the complex and, yes, historically specific intersection of suburb and screen to ask more general questions about the ambiguous relationships of media technologies for how we experience particular urban environments and urban ways of living. For example, between immediate immersive experiences and hyper-mediated or distracted ones, or between a very local experience and being connected to that which is distant in space. These questions are not necessarily ones we can only direct at television in suburbia. We can also think about it in relation to, for example, remote working and the home offices it has created, or the way we use mobile devices on public transport. That's it for this episode. In our next, we'll be exploring the auditory dimensions of mediated urban experience. So, until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.